Good morning and uh, welcome back to the Better Than I Found It podcast. I guess you can uh, listen to it any time of day, but it's morning for us here. This is Mikael uh, Bjerkendriesen, the assistant men's golf coach for Baylor, and I'm joined by the head coach, Coach McGraw. Uh, good morning, Coach. How are you? Great, Mikael. How are you doing this morning? I'm uh, doing pretty well. We're uh, going to record a Q&A podcast uh, for us today uh, for the listeners we have a, a Instagram page and a Facebook page where I posted a swing of yours. Um, and that swing was from January. That was from January 3rd, I think. A seven iron? I hit 41, 41 seven irons that day, yes. Okay. I posted that and I said, hey, anybody out there have some questions for coach? We're going to do a coach kind of Q&A style. So let's just get into it. What do you say? I, I think that'd be great. Okay. Yeah. First, we had some kind of funny comments, I guess, or funny questions, so we'll just get those out of the way. A guy named Corey Witsit, you know that guy? <laughs> and very well. He says, uh, can we just get a video of a driver with the wind 30 off the left? Yeah, Corey witnessed a, if you want me to talk about that. Yeah, okay, sure. Okay, well, I think he missed that it should be wind off the right, because when I, the year I was at Alabama, I don't know what encouraged me to do this, but Corey had said, Coach, can we meet? at 10.30 on Saturday morning, can you watch me hit some balls? And I said, sure. And so as I would normally do, I got out there quite a bit early and I was sitting in the office and I was thinking, boy, it's a nice morning, a little breezy, but it's very warm. I think I'll go out and hit a few balls before Corey gets here, which was crazy because I hadn't hit any balls. And basically when I was in Tuscaloosa, I'd played one time. So I went down there and the wind was off the right and I got loose and I started hitting drivers. And... I was just by myself, and one after another, I started hitting these little butter cuts just up against the wind. I thought, this is perfect. I'm just hitting cut shots against this wind. Wind's holding them straight. They're all going dead straight. Now, to be sure, they're going about 240, <laughs> so they weren't going anywhere, but they were going straight. Well, exactly. But they were going pretty straight, uh, very straight, actually. And so I just kept on hitting them and one after another, and I got to my 10th one and just striped it as well as I could possibly hit it. And all of a sudden, I hear from behind me, Coach McGraw, that's unbelievable. And I look back, and it was Corey. And I just casually put the head cover back on the driver, put it up, and never hit another ball for him. So in Corey's mind, I was this amazingly accurate ball striker. And uh, I don't really think I've let Corey see my swing ever since that time. And Corey's a pretty accomplished player. He won a U.S. junior, was a Walker Cupper, first-team All-American. He's a great player. And for him to think that I was a good player, I thought that was a good deal. (laughs) But I I haven't hit any more balls for him since. Corey, I'm in the same boat as you. I've uh, never seen Coach McGraw play. My senior year, which is now seven years ago, Coach McGraw promised me we would play. But uh, I've yet to see that uh, promise. I have a question. If I did promise you... If I die, then I broke my promise. But if I'm not dead and we still have a chance to play that round of golf, I haven't broken my promise. We'll play together. We will. And it actually looks like we're going to get to play together in a couple days. Uh, You've adjusted a game. We have a kid who can hit up to seven irons, I think, because he's coming off an injury. So you were like, okay, I'll jump on that. I can hit a seven iron. I know I can still hit a seven iron. So it looks like we're actually going to get to play, which is going to be a historic event. Anyways, we have uh, another couple of comments on the video, uh, more than questions for you. A guy named Simeron Grubb. Simeron Grubb. Simeron Grubb. Class of 1988, Ebon High School. Okay, not the best name 
pronunciation there. I'm uh, still foreign, so st- struggling with that. But he says, are those genes? And yes, I think Th- those are genes. definitely genes. I will, I will say this. I, if I'm not at the office or at a tournament or recruiting or whatever, I probably have jeans on. I, when I get home, the slacks come off and a pair of jeans goes on. And people say, how jeans aren't even comfortable. Much more comfortable than slacks. So I wear jeans around the house all the time. Okay. We have John Ron the Fifth says, is that Hogan PC equalizer? Yeah, John Ron knows about my uh, affinity for Ben Hogan, all things Ben Hogan. And I played Ben Hogan Irons growing up. And so when he first met me, I, I was really close to his dad. But when John got old enough to meet me, I was playing Hogan Irons at the time. And, and that's all he remembers is that's what I used in those days. Um, but those weren't Hogan's. They're your pings. Those are my pings. Yeah, I'm a ping guy. Yeah, for sure. they're sitting right behind you there. Mm-hmm. Okay, Trevor Stafford says, will the NCAA grant Trevor Stafford a year of eligibility to play at Baylor? Well, Trevor had a couple of injuries in college, and actually I think it took six or seven years for Trevor to get through college. He was a uh, Edmond High School product in the mid-2000s, uh, went to Wichita State, was injured, ended up at Central Oklahoma. Took him about six or seven years to get through, and I know he wants one more year of eligibility, and that's actually very humbling that he would come down here to Waco to play for me, but two things are going against him. <laughs> one, the NCAA is not going to grant an additional year, and number two, I'm not recruiting him. He's not going to come play for us. Great guy, though, Trevor Stafford. You'd love him. And uh, three, you're coaching in jeans now, so times have changed. Um, yes. Okay, let's go get over to some you know, more kind of serious questions, I guess. And because of NCAA rules, we obviously can't name any PSAs, prospective student athletes that haven't signed with a school or anything like that. But we did get some questions from young aspiring players. So let's just jump right into those, I guess. They're pretty, really good questions, a couple of them. Uh, One no-name PSA asked, What's the biggest thing a coach would like to see in a player? And I'm assuming he means, you know, in a player that he would recruit and, and a junior player. Well, if you're talking golf skill, I, th- I think uh, speed and, and length off the tee is pretty big. But I'm really kind of intrigued by creativity around the greens. Uh, we currently have a player on our team that's as good as anybody I've ever coached in 35 years. And I've coached some good ones, but uh, Cooper Dossie. When he gets around the green, you know something special is getting ready to happen because of his creativity, because of his skills. So I, I do look to see what they can do around the green because I know one. Th- I don't know very many things for a fact, but I do know for a fact when they get to college, they're going to miss greens on my team. They're not going to hit every green their entire co- uh, career. So I want to see what they can do uh, getting the ball up and down. So I do look for that. I do look for speed. That's important to me. I, I think – I'm going to recruit a lot less guys going forward that that have my club at speed. <laughs> and yeah, so we, we 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 do not need that. We do not need that. <laughs> now, um, I do. I'm pretty accurate. Just ask Corey Whitsett. But but I would say that uh, uh, speed and uh, creativity around the greens are big. Yeah. What about other than skill stuff, though, Coach? Like when you're out recruiting, what do you look for? Yeah, I really think character is about the most important thing to me. I've I've done. It both ways. I've, I've where I've recruited character and where I've recruited just talent and skill and results. Uh, character wins out just about in everything in, in this life. If you've got character, you're going to be a better husband, a better father, a better teammate, a better player, a better 
a manager for, for a player on tour, a better, you know, just whatever you are, you're going to be better if you've got good character. So I look for that. It's not always possible to know exactly what you're getting. And honestly, for the recruit or the prospect, it's not always possible for them to know exactly what they're getting into either. But if, if they're looking for a coach with character and I'm looking for a player with character, those two things align pretty nicely. So I think that's number one. I can get past funny golf swings. I can get past a kid being lazy. I don't want him to be lazy, but if he ended up being lazy, I can figure that one out. But character, true character, I'm probably not going to change that. It's probably what it is when they get to college. Yep. Uh, another couple of questions uh, from young players. Favorite course that you have not played but want to one day? Pebble Beach. Um, oh, really? Yeah, you I've never played, played Pebble? Pebble. I've really? seen it, been there, but I've never played it. Um, so I would love to play Pebble. It just, you know, the golf ball goes a long way. So now on a calm day, you well, can... Well, not for you, but, but for Wow, the good rest shot. Of us, yeah. Well played. The golf ball... <laughs> does go a lot further than it did in 1972 when Jack Nicklaus shot 290 to win the U.S. Open. Uh, but it's still got teeth when the wind blows, and it's a, a master of uh, golf course architecture and uses one of the most beautiful pieces of property in the entire world to build a golf course. So I haven't played it. I would love to play that golf course one day. Uh, what about favorite golf hole in the world? That's also coming from a young player here. This one's going to surprise a lot of people. It is number two at Prairie Dunes. It's about a 148-yard par three that has no hazard, no, no penalty area, and can p- cause you more grief and misery than just about any hole in the world. Mm-hmm. It's got an absolute amazing green complex. So to me, it's, it's one of the great short par threes in the world. I'm now, I've never played the seventh at Pebble, and I've never played the twelfth at Augusta, but so I've never played either one of those, but... I know this par three, number two at Prairie Dunes in Hutchinson, Kansas, is just a an amazing, amazing golf hole. So I, to me, that's my favorite hole in the world because it doesn't have, it's not long, uh, but it's got an amazing backdrop of a, of a, a dune with uh, native grass all on it and then just a, a, a green with lots and lots of movement. And uh, it's not very long, but it, it can play very, very difficult. And when the wind blows, uh, you better <laughs> buckle up. It's a tough yeah. one. So. I love yeah I agree that's a tough one. I love par threes that are around that distance. It's they don't have to be two forty to challenge a player. I saw one picture this past week from Augusta since this past week was uh, Masters week. It was a different angle of uh, hole twelve. Mm-hmm. Did you see that one? I did see that. Where they had taken it from kind of the right side of the green, and so they've pictured the depth of the green or, or how shallow it is. And it explains like everything about that hole, like how genius it is when you when you see it from that angle. Um, look that up on on uh, Twitter because that was good. That reminds me of hole two at Paradunes as well. Okay, there's a question coming from Brian Brodell. You know Brian? I do know Brian. Okay, if you had to walk one final round with any player you have ever coached, who would it be and why? So I, I get to choose a player to walk one more round. Is he, uh, one final round with any player that you've ever coached. Is he being prophetic? Does he know something I don't know about the end of uh, my career? Do I need to be I, thinking I, about this? I don't think so. I think he's just inquisitive. That's a good question. That, that is a very good question. I would probably walk uh, with a young lady named uh, Robin Orndorff. And... Um, 
So obviously she wasn't a famous golfer, and, and, uh, but Robin was uh, just an amazing, amazing human being. She uh, passed away at age 14. She's in the Edmund Junior Golf Hall of Fame. We, she was in our uh, first induction class. But at age 14, when she passed away, she had, had uh, experienced 41 surgeries. And the last surgery was a kidney uh, given to her by her uncle that didn't take. Uh, but she, she was everything you'd want. She was the toughest little girl you've ever seen in your life. And she would be on dialysis all morning long. And then she would show up and come out and play in our junior golf program. And she did that year after year after year. And she ended up playing in junior golf tournaments around the state of Oklahoma. And she could win junior golf tournaments. She, uh, she played uh, pickup baseball and basketball games in the neighborhood with other boys. She was tough. She fought hard in everything she did. And she was just an amazing inspiration to me. So if I could play one more round of golf, it would probably be with Robin, with a junior golfer that I worked with for sure. Cool. Good answer. Maggie Roller. We both know Maggie real well. She's an instructor in uh, Tulsa. Son, uh, J.P. Roller, plays uh, at Texas Tech right now. Great family. She uh, may be the biggest fan of this podcast, I think. <laughs> she has a question. She says, uh, who is your hardest working player ever and why? What do they do specifically? Well... This is uh, going to be a tie between two players, and both of them have actually been on this podcast. So Charles Howe would literally get to the golf course as quickly as he could after lunch, and he would practice until about 15 or 20 minutes before dark, and he'd throw in a, a line in the uh, lake right behind the team range there at Karsten Creek, fish a little bit. Some nights he wouldn't because he'd practice until dark, but Charles wasn't a guy that loved to go play, but he loved to work at the game of golf, and it was nonstop. And if you went to Florida and you were in Orlando, where Charles lives at Isleworth, I bet you'd see him doing the same thing today. Even with a wife and kids, I bet he choreographs his daily schedule so that he gets to work at golf. He's a really, really hard worker. But the other one uh, that is tied with Charles would be Zach Robinson, who was on our podcast a month or so ago. And Zach... Um, I had breakfast with Zach every Saturday morning at Karsten Creek for his five years. Even the year I was the women's head coach, uh, we would meet out there and have breakfast. And it was early. It was about 7 or 7.30 right before he went out to practice. So he practiced every Saturday morning. Uh, by 8 o'clock, he was out practicing. And he just worked hard all the time. In fact, I can remember uh, plenty of days when he didn't get out there until after dark. He was leaving Karsten Creek after dark. And he needed to do that. Zach didn't have the same skills as a guy like Charles Howell or Hunter mm -hmm. Mahan or Peter Uline or Ricky Fowler. Those guys all had came to college with a lot of skill. And Zach was talented, but he developed his talent over time. He was a two-time All-American at Oklahoma State. And I, a lot of people would not have picked that to happen. I think he developed his talent. And I think that's a perfect example of how God gives us all talent. He's given you a talent to coach. And you're developing your talents right now as a young coach. You're 28, is that right? Well, mm -hmm. I'm 60, so I'm a little further down the road than you are, but I'm still trying to develop that talent. So I think somebody that's a hard worker is somebody that takes the talent they've been given and develops it. And so both Charles and Zach, and Charles is 41 and still as excited about practicing at golf as he ever has been. And Zach that developed his way through college to be a two-time All-American hard working guys both of those yeah what about um 
one of my childhood heroes just growing up in Norway and he was a Swedish golfer and he had a blog at the time and stuff and <laughs> this might be uh you know a little spoiler alert but he's coming on the podcast either before this drops or after we don't know yet but Alex Noren where does he fit in that well equation? he'd be right behind those two guys but not but well he'll be ahead of them in something I call enthusiasm <laughs> absolutely woke up every day with this unbelievable insatiable desire to go figure out things about the game of golf. And if you talk to Alex today, he's 38, same thing today. And he will be a podcaster here before long. I think it's a really, really good uh, example of what enthusiasm, along with hard work, can do with you. And so, yeah, he'd be right there with him. He yeah. probably... We've just many. all seen those pictures, you know, his oh, hands. The, those and, are the greatest. Yeah. That's the greatest picture ever. <laughs> but I will say this. Uh, Alex would be right up near the top of that list. But he, he trumps almost everybody I've coached because of enthusiasm. Yeah. Uh, Lindsay Q, I hope that's how you pronounce the last name. She's the women's head coach at Denver. Um, faithful listener to the podcast, and she has some really good questions. So first one, let's go with this one. Mental skills a coach can introduce to help with performance under pressure. Like what What are some of those that come to mind, coach, the, the mental skills that, that you try to coach to the players? Well, I think what you get kids to do is to look introspectively, look inside first. So most of the time when we have uh, insecurities or whatever it is, it will manifest itself under pressure. It's going to show up. You're gonna, when you get under pressure, the weaknesses you have, they show up and you, uh, you fail or you don't get the result you wanted. So I try to get guys to look inside and be honest with themselves. Uh, had I done this as a younger player, I might have been a lot better golfer. But, you know, I had a, some insecurities. I, I didn't feel great about competing. And I worked as hard as anybody could work at golf. But I always came up a little bit short. And I knew as a coach, the one thing I'd want guys to do or girls when I was coaching a women's team was to look inside first and figure out why that's happening. Don't push it aside like it doesn't exist. I think you have to deal it with it head on. So having said that, that's a big, big uh, high level answer right there. But more specifically, it would be to go out on the golf course and in practice and put them in uncomfortable situations. I was watching you, in fact, last week work with one of our players in an off-season skill instruction, and you were really stressing his nervous system by putting short side miss, you know, strong side, short side, whatever, but you were doing some drills that penalized, instead of just hitting six irons to a target on a range, you gave him something, did you? I mean, could you explain yeah. that a little bit? I mean, uh, yeah, just having some consequences, right? Yeah. So. so I think practicing when you have drills, you put them under pressure in the heat, whether it's on the golf course or on the range, but then have a consequence attached to it. It's pretty simple. You can come up with a lot of different games. I would, there's no one game that you've got to do it this way or that way. Yeah. I would just be very intentional about stressing the nervous system. If you don't make it hard in practice, how in the world are they going to handle what's going on when the, in the competition comes? But that begins with looking inside and knowing, you know what? I get really scared on the golf course, and why do I get scared? Exactly. Time. And I think you come back to your tendencies under pressure and or when you play a lot of golf, competitive golf, and so – both Troy Denton spoke about that, about his players on the podcast, how, you know, we kind of revert back to our tendencies, both mentally and physically, uh, as far as swing technically or, or 
you know, our mental process either speed up or slow down or uh, something different. And um, Webb Simpson mentioned the same thing too. Figure out what you do under pressure. And he mentioned VJ. VJ figured out why he hit it left under pressure and went from nine wins to 34 wins. So and if you look back even further, Ben Hogan. I mean, he had a really good year uh, right after the war, World War II. He came back and played pretty well that year, but he knew that that hook that he was hitting wasn't going to take him where he wanted to go eventually. And he spent that whole winter finding out why he hit that hook, mm-hmm. ridded it from his golf game, did everything. But he literally looked uh, head-on at his problem. So I think that's the main key. Yeah. yeah, kind of the personal tendencies, figure out what happens under pressure. For sure. Uh, serious golf talk. Next question. Serious golf talk. That's another podcast. Uh, they asked asked us a question or asked you a question, Coach. Said, could the two thousand Oklahoma State team still compete at the NCAA's twenty twenty one in college golf? So I think they mean, would that team be good enough to still play this year in college golf and and show up at nationals? Well. I'm going to say yes, and for this reason. The guy who led that team, Charles Howe, shot 23 under par. Nobody's approached it since, and nobody, Phil Mickelson got closest to it before, and that was six shots behind it. So they had a guy leading the way that could play today. Oh, by the way, he's still playing the PGA Tour very well. So, yes, I think that team could compete. You had a lot of good players. Edward Lohr, who played pro golf until last year, uh, he played on the Asian Tour, he played PJ Tour and he played the Corn Ferry Tour as well. And Edward played for 18 years. Yeah. So, yes, I think that that team could probably compete today. So, what would they finish then, do you think? If you teed them up, Nationals is right now and you have everybody there. You have our Baylor team, you have all the other top, you know, 25 or 30 teams, I guess it is, at Nationals teeing it up right now. And your 2000 OSU team is pegging it up as well. Where well, would they finish? I mean, they've got to finish in the top five. They yeah. won a national yeah. championship. I think they would finish in the top five for sure. I don't okay. see how they wouldn't. That, that You're was not going to go out on a limb and say they would win the whole thing? Well, know? they're not going to beat Baylor. <laughs> True. <laughs> okay, they can get second, They though. can get second. Okay. No, that, that was a really good team. But, uh, you know, and unheralded and unmentioned and overlooked often is what Landry Mahan did that week. And Landry's no uh, relation to Hunter, but he was from Richardson, Texas. I think I've mentioned this before, but... Landry finished 13th in that event. He became an honorable mention All-American that year. And I think if Landry hadn't showed up that week, we were not going to win the golf tournament because we mm-hmm. won in the playoff as it, as it stood over Georgia Tech. But that Landry was a really talented uh, kid from, from the Dallas-Fort Worth area. But anyway, that team was really good. I think they'd compete nicely in college golf today. Who, so who were all the names then? Do you know them off yes, the top of your head in that, in that five? That you I do. Took? Charles Howe, Edward Lohr. Landry Mahan, Anders Holtman, a Swede, yeah. and J.C. DeLeon, who was a freshman yeah. from Tulsa. And J.C. actually made about a seven- or eight-foot birdie putt uh, that, that to win the national championship. It was pretty big. Yeah. Cool. So top five behind Baylor somewhere. Somewhere. Eric Kalina asks, and I'm sorry, people, if I'm butchering your names. Uh, if these were Norwegian names, I'd be killing it. But sometimes I'm a little bit off. Eric Kalina ask in your opinion what's the most important mental skill that champions possess so he's kind of going along the same ask uh ask question by Lindsay Kuhl but what is the most important mental skill that champions possess 
the ability to uh, overcome doubt, self-doubt, because every single player that plays the golf, the game of golf, including Tiger Woods, Jack Nicklaus, Ben Hogan, they all experience bouts with self-doubt. Every mm-hmm. one of them does. So I think their ability to do that is is big. I'm, I can't just give one, yeah. if that's okay. Yep. But so the ability to to do that, and Webb Simpson talked about it a couple of weeks ago on our podcast about how. You know, he had a lot of doubts. He didn't know what was going to happen. He had a lot of stress, a lot of uh, anxiety about it. But he's figured that out to the point where he can compete at a high level for a long period of time. So I think the ability to do that, I think they have a, a great ability to compartmentalize their work, their training, their life, their personal life. They have a, do a good job of that because if you can't, you're just going to be discombobulated all over the place. So they organize their life well that leads up to good golf. They, mm-hmm. they have to be able to do that. If you end up having a family with a wife and kids, I mean, you've got to manage that. They need to be still first in your life before golf. And then how do you make golf a nice little, you know, uh, runner up in, if you will, to the family. And so they, they do a good job of compartmentalizing or organizing their life there. And the first one I said was they, they, they rid themselves of, or they overcome the self doubt that they might have. And then finally, they just they learn to simplify the game, I think. And that's a, that's a mental skill. I have to simplify what's going on here. I think we just saw a great example of it with Dustin Johnson. Mm-hmm. I mean, his, he, he has made golf look so simple. Uh, and he plays bad golf, too. It's not like he plays good golf every day. But I, I think simplifying it makes it a lot more, makes a lot more sense to your brain. So mm-hmm. I think those three things probably. Yeah. Great comment on the self-doubt and People, go listen to the Webb Simpson podcast because uh, there's some really, really good stuff in there on that. Um, cool. Giovanna Maimon, she's from Mexico. She played here at Baylor. She is the grad assistant at South Alabama currently, so she's a coach over there. She has several questions for you, Coach. Um, she's super curious, and she she wants to learn a lot, so she's uh, she's pumped about coaching. She says... How do you coach on the course? And so I think she's meaning in tournaments. How do you uh, typically go about coaching during a tournament round? Well, for years now, I've walked with one player and generally had my assistant coach walk with one player. So that day, two-fifths of the team would have a coach with them and the other three-fifths would not. And while I'm still thinking that's a good thing, I mean, I know that if I watch a kid tee off on the first hole and I see him sign his scorecard and I'm with him every step for step, every step of the way for that five and a half hours, I'm going to learn a lot about him. And the conversation we're going to have after the round to summarize or review or look into what went wrong or went right, I think that's a pretty intelligent conversation because I've witnessed every shot, he's played every shot, and together we can talk about it. But I don't think it's the only way to do it, although I think it's a good way to do it. I think uh, this year even, you and I might bounce around a little bit, which is okay. Um, but we still, if a kid's struggling, might go with one kid for a whole round. So, But the, the main thing is you want to figure out how you can learn as much about a player as you possibly can. So that mm-hmm. you don't want to just go through a round of golf and not learn anything. So if you end up bouncing around, you're making notes, your mental notes or you're writing them down or you're doing something, you want to be able to have good conversations after a round to review, summarize, uh, interpret what just happened. So that part, I think that if, you, um, if you're just handling out a bottle of water three or four times a round and patting them on the back, 
that's sort of coaching, but not really. I want to do more. I think you've enjoyed walking with one player, haven't you? Yeah, I've I've done several things in my career, but yeah, mostly walk walk with one player as well. I think what you said about you know you're trying to get your team to perform as as well as possible, but I think what a lot of coaches are uh, forgetting is also that value that you said about having insight into a player and what they do on the golf course in a tournament will help you in the player development part in between the tournaments. Yeah, and you have to you have to be on a bigger picture long term yeah. there. It's like when Taylor Gooch was a freshman, he talked about it. It's one of the most significant things he ever learned in golf was the time I allowed him to make a horrible mistake. And he was a freshman. It was his first collegiate round. It was in the fall. I mean, it was early in his career. And I knew he was playing one of the dumbest shots I could ever see. But the reason I allowed him to do it was very valuable to me as a coach. I could look, and if if he's even imagining and considering the shot that he was describing to me, then he's in a bad spot. I need to let him make this mistake. He must make this mistake. He almost has to make it. Because if I force him to chip out and he ends up making a bogey, his attitude is going to be, well, if I'd have tried the other shot, I would have made a par or maybe even a birdie. But he didn't let me. That was wrong. I needed him to make the mistake. Yeah, it hurt our team score that day for sure. Cost us a double bogey. When I know it, it cost us at least one shot. He would have made an easy bogey at worst. But I was thinking more long-term, if this kid's mind is there, then I've got some work to do with him. And he knew it later on. And it's, it's funny how he doesn't take offense to it. He's not defensive about it. It's like, yeah, that was a great moment for me because you allowed me to make a stupid mistake, which most co- now don't do this at the conference championship in the final <laughs> round. <laughs> Be smart. Don't do this at the national championship. You should have already done your coaching by then. I call it September coaching versus May coaching. Mm-hmm. If you're doing September coaching in May, you got a problem. Let's make sure that those learning experiences happen early enough in the season where you can recover. But that's why I walk with one player a lot of times. It's because I'm going to have opportunities to see what he's thinking, why he's thinking it, how he's processing information, how he handles the good stuff, how he handles the bad stuff. And I get to a window into his soul, if you will. Yeah. Good answer. Okay. Uh, and then her next question, Giovanna, still is uh, – do you coach differently in the Maxwell format? And so a Maxwell format is when all five players on the team play in the same group. And we had something kind of an adjusted Maxwell format, I guess, at Colonial this year where we played three and three because we played a six count four. And so I was with three of our players. You were with three of our players. I've actually yet to coach a true Maxwell format myself, being all five players of the same team in one group. Uh, but why don't you go ahead and answer that one, Coach? Like, how does that change when, when you have teammates in the same group that you're uh, trying to kind of coach more than one kid at So if you've got the Maxwell format, you've got all five players together, I would, to begin with, I'd practice it at home. I would take those five that are going to be playing in the tournament, do it a couple of times at home so they can see what it feels like, see the rhythm of it, see how the coaches you know, handle things or what we're doing, and just kind of get a feel for how it will look once we get to the tournament. So I would do that first. But I've made a lot of mistakes coaching the Maxwell format. Really? Oh, boy, have I ever. And one of them is, uh, I mean, I've got to be the same guy on the road in the Maxwell format that I would be at home. Mm-hmm. And so this, this doesn't just uh, relate to the Maxwell format. It re- relates to coaching, period. You want to be very similar at home as you will be on the road because if you're not, then the kids have a heightened sense of, uh-oh, something's wrong. He's, 
He's not the same. What's wrong? I want to be the same. Now, if that means if I'm a a ruthless, mean, tough taskmaster at home, well, that's what I'm going to be on the road. If I'm real relaxed and easygoing at home, I should be that on the road. And I learned that. Pablo Martin taught me that. And I was, gosh, I I was 46 years of age. So it wasn't like I was a young coach. But um, Did he tell you straight up, coach, you're way too tense on the road? This is perfect. He did. Really? Not necessarily on the road all the time, but in that Maxwell format. We were, we had a, the coaches are basically responsible for the speed of play, essentially right. for your team. Yeah. So a kid putts out, go to the next tee and just, just be going. Um, and I, we were late in the round and we were leading the golf tournament, but we were getting ready to get a two shot penalty because our group was a little slow. We had a lost ball or something. And I was really, I guess. That stresses you out more yeah, than anything I was a little life. bit stressed. And, and <laughs> so there, guys are putting and Pablo pulls me aside and he says, coach. I said, yeah, Pablo. He goes, we got this. Just settle down. Don't worry about this. I know, but Pablo, we got to finish it, coach. We've got this. <laughs> and um, I thought about it, and, and we did. We won that day, and we didn't get the two-shot penalty, and we went on to win the national championship. A lot of it had to do with Jonathan Moore and Pablo were playing the best golf of their lives at the time is why we won the national championship. But if I back up, I made a conscious effort the rest of the semester to just be, everything's fine, everything's, we're at Karsten Creek, I'm the same guy. I was literally, I had fun the rest of the semester, all the way through every tournament we played. And I think, I think that helped, it was only three more tournaments, but I think it helped listening to Pablo. So if I was going to tell you as a coach how to go uh, coach this format, I would say, make sure that that uh, you've practiced it at home. Make sure you're the same personality you would be at home. You don't want it to change. And then I, I think if you have a team where they don't get along, this is going to be a tough format for you because they're all there together. And this is the first time they've played in front of their teammates and in front of their coaches all together at once. So there's a heightened sense of pressure on every player anyway. So if your intensity level and your blood pressure is up as a coach, you're going to really have a hard time getting the guys to perform. So as much as you can be like at home, that's what I would be on the road. And uh, just get in that good rhythm and you'll enjoy it. It's actually a fun format. I still like it. So one more deeper question on that, I guess. Let's say you're in the Maxwell format and you have four players that are going along nicely. Let's say it's a 36-hole day and during the middle of the day, one of your players starts struggling really bad and might be getting kind of Debbie Downer a little bit and... How do you handle that in the Maxwell format where, where your other four teammates are seeing every shot and they're around this teammate? I think you find a convenient time to pull him aside. Like, let's say he's hooked a ball over in the left rough and you're over there with him. Just have a, a moment to say, listen, everything's going to be fine. Don't worry about this. Nobody, everybody else is they're struggling with their own problems. They're dealing with their own insecurities. They're, they're having troubles, too. I just want you to relax and be your own. You just try to talk him off a ledge, if you will, and get him to understand it's going to be fine. And you do that where it's not in front of his teammates and then just make him feel comfortable. Maybe walk with him a little bit more and just kind of talk him through. It may take a little while to get him there that day, but I think it's important that he knows you believe in him and just to settle down. I wouldn't make it confrontational at that point. Probably a little too late to be confrontational, I would think. Yeah, I think momentum can be a truly real thing i mean it is a real thing in golf in general but in the maxwell format for sure so i'd say you know celebrate a teammate's uh, accomplishments and made putts and not anything overdone but you know 
definitely needs to be an element of high fives and you know good shots and stuff I think that's natural with most teams but it's easy for that to go down or at least I picture that in my head for that kind of morale to go down if a couple players are kind of struggling with their game um yes I agree with that anyways uh, she has one final question uh, a book that has impacted your life the most which book is that coach well the obvious book for me would be the Bible because it's been a book that's been important to me since I was 20 years of age. But uh, aside from that, as far as a coaching book, that type of book, uh, a book called Lead for God's Sake by Todd Gongwer, just amazing. I think it's one of the great coaching books ever written. Uh, It's a parable. It's a story about uh, an extremely successful high school basketball coach in Kentucky who's got a friend who's the president and CEO of an extremely successful company. And both men their careers are, are struggling and their personal lives are struggling. And and you, the author, Todd Gongward, takes you through their struggles and then it takes you on the other side to a very, very surprising person that helps them both. And I, I, I don't want to spoil the end for you, but it's a great book. I really like that book. As far as a coaching book, so that's the Bible being the most important book in my life. Lead for God's Sake is one of the great coaching books and it's a story. Uh, but then uh, as far as a coaching book, I think anything by John Wooden, I think he did, a, he did it. He was a pioneer as far as giving information about how to coach, what to do, how to set up a team, all of that. I think you could get good information from then, from, certainly from him. And uh, then there's a book by Bill Walsh, the great San Francisco 49ers coach, called The Score Takes Care of Itself. And I think it's probably one of the best books I've read on getting – uh, a culture changed and then holding true to that culture and because culture is a very overused word in coaching and in team building and all of that but it's real and he took the worst team in the league that had been the worst for several years and three years later they won a Super Bowl after he got there so I think that book is really valuable it's it's got some good insights so those are three books I'd say what are you reading right now then? I'm reading a book called Fly Into the Wind by uh Lieutenant Colonel Dan Rooney, and I've read uh, Dan's other book, but I, I'm very interested in this book because it, it goes a little deeper, I think, into uh, some of the struggles that he had that, that I did I knew kind of it happened, but wasn't aware and how he overcame them. So I think that's a really good book, and another book called Leaders Eat Last, and I, I can't believe I haven't read that. The book's six years old, but uh, it, it's really interesting. So I've got two books going right now. Cool. By the way, can I say something about Giovanna Maimon? Yeah. Yeah, you know, we sure. talked about hard workers, Zach uh, Robinson, Charles Howell, Alex Noren. Uh, I didn't coach Giovanna, but I got to watch her on a daily basis, her four years here at Baylor, and uh, she was an inspiration to me. She she didn't play her best golf at the end. She wasn't playing as, as well as she did. Her freshman year, she helped lead the team, and they, they went to the national finals and were, were runner-up to Stanford in the national finals her freshman year. But she was an inspiration. She worked extremely hard, and she never made excuses, and she always uh, was asking for help. Mm-hmm. And I know Jay Goebel, our women's coach, thought she was uh, one of the great girls that he ever had on her team, and she was. So I was very impressed, but I'm glad she asked those questions. I think she's going to be an amazing coach. I agree. Yeah. She's a very caring person, too. So she for sure. turned out to be a very good friends with my wife and she has tons of enthusiasm for golf and coaching so I think she's going to be really really good um 
Coach, last thing here. Mm-hmm. You've put all of our uh, guests, or, or most of them, I guess, about 90% of our mm-hmm. guests through a speed round oh, that, no. that you've designed. <laughs> you didn't know. Designed. So you I've did, designed a, a speed round for you. Okay. And, um, yeah, I've not prepared you for this. So we'll, uh, we'll see how you handle your own weapon here. Uh, first speed round question. You got to be quick, just like you tell your guest. Okay. Well, I say that to my guests, but I allow them some time. <laughs> no, so. no, no. You okay. you gotta you gotta knock this out of the ballpark. All this right, is here. your game here. Here we go. First question: Favorite podcast episode so far? Favorite podcast episode would be Troy Denton. Okay. I, I've just really, really thought he had a lot of wisdom for a guy that no, not very many people know about. Okay. Then a question that you ask all your guests. I don't know why you asked this, but I'm going to ask you the same. Mm-hmm. Remember the Titans or Shawshank Redemption? Remember the Titans. Okay. Uh, another question. Which college golf coach are you most likely to room with at a, at the next real convention? And I'm not, not one of them. If I'm rooming with somebody else, who would you room with at the GCA convention? Probably Jay Sewell at Alabama, just because he's absolutely off the charts, crazy, wild, unbelievably interesting, fun, enthusiastic. And he's just a barrel of laughs most of the time. Jay's great. We loved rooming together the year I was at Alabama. So this year is a virtual convention, so I guess you guys can do like a virtual roomy roomy thing. Yeah, it'll be great. The favorite uh, Pam McGraw meal that she makes you, your wife. Favorite Pam McGraw meal? Yeah. Would, that would have to be beef stroganoff. Now, we haven't been eating a lot of that lately, going vegan, but uh, that that's a pretty amazing meal. Yeah, and her sopapilla cheesecake, it's, I guess there's uh, there's a little bit of heaven in butter and sugar when you get them together, and wow, that that's the greatest dessert in the world. Okay, flip it on you then. Pam's favorite meal that you make her. Wow, I don't make a lot of great meals. Um, when she had, you can grill pretty good. Well, yeah, I, I can do grilled chicken, uh, green beans, and uh, mashed potatoes. I can do that. Oh my gosh, that's yeah. boring. Poor Pam. Yeah. Uh, okay, you wake up at four a.m. tomorrow, like you do every day. If I were to hand you a seven iron, stand outside your house, hand you a seven iron and a ball, and said, "Hey, hit this ball," what would happen? What ball flight would we see? What kind of contact? I'm sure Pam would schedule my funeral by about noon. <laughs> There's no way I could hit a ball at 4 o'clock in the morning. I've got too much pain. I think it would be a very thin shot because I wouldn't want to have any contact with the ground. Yeah. It would be very thin. It would probably go about 138 to 142 yards, somewhere a little bit. That's way too aggressive, Coach. Little, it's more like 124. A little toe hooky. <laughs> so it would probably be left of the target. Okay. Uh not a lot of people know this, but you used to be a cross-country coach yes. as well. Best mile you ever ran? I ran a 5.12, and I, I want to explain what happened. I'd never been timed for the mile. I'd never – I'd run the mile. I guess I ran the mile in the sixth grade. Don't know what that time would have been, but I kept on running. And so I'm coaching cross-country, and the head coach, Dave Sammons, who I won on the podcast one day. Dave Sammons is the one of the great coaches in all of athletics. So – Dave said we were going to have a mile flush out. That's where you go run a mile as hard as you can. And there were three groups, A group, B group, and then the C group. And the C group were just guys having fun. B group were guys that were freshmen and wanted to be on the varsity one day. And then the A group was the varsity and kids who were challenging for varsity. So I always ran with the B group. He always, where were you running five miles or whatever? And on this particular day, he says, Coach McGraw, we're running a mile flush out, a mile as hard as you can. And today, Coach, I want you to run with the A group. 
And I looked at him like, are you kidding me? There's no way. He said, Ryan Suchala, I just want you to hang with Suchala. Just, st- just hang with him right there. And so sure enough, I did. And I literally collapsed over the, over the finish line at 512 for a mile. And uh, I literally, that's the only time I've ever, I haven't that timed it since then. That's oh, 28 years ago. But a five twelve. I figured I'd run That's a five thirteen or fourteen. Five twelve is good, but tell tell the other part of the story then. What happened with one of your players? You talking about Alex? Yeah. Okay, so Alex Noren and I were riding together back from the uh, Big Twelve Championship at Prairie Dunes. So we got about a two hour drive, and, he, and Mike Holder has the team in the van, so it's just Alex and I. And I was going to take Alex to his apartment and drop him off, and then when we got to Stillwater, and we were talking about running. And Alex said, yeah, I'm a pretty good runner. I said, I know, I've noticed that about you. You're really fast. Have you ever timed your mile? He goes, no. And I said, well, Alex, uh, I ran a 512 back in 1992. And he looked at me and says, I bet I could run a 512. So we didn't go straight to his apartment. We stopped at the track. And I had a stopwatch, well, a clock or something. I had some. And I said, I'll give you your mile split or your half mile split. So at a half mile, I want to tell you exactly where you are. And sure enough, he was literally two or three seconds over what it would take to get a 5.12. And Alex, remember, has played 18 holes of golf and ridden two hours in a car and hops out with, uh, he didn't have slacks, he put shorts on, but, and Alex ran a 5.11. I was so (laughs) mad that he had done that and it wasn't even training and he ran a 5.11. So anyway, that's that's pretty good. That's talent right there. That is talent. Last question. Favorite Coach McGraw quirk. So your own favorite quirk, which you're a man made of only quirks. That's all you are. Which I, is your favorite? I'm just a walking quirk? Is yes. That what, yeah. No, not one quirk. A set of quirks. A set of quirks. I would say that the favorite thing I do that I like <laughs> is I want everything in order. And so I'll tell you a story about, and Pam is the victim of this one. Poor Pam. So when we were dating, we dated for the longest time. We never went to my apartment, ever. Because all I had at my apartment was a Barca lounger chair and some golf magazines, golf clubs, and some golf memorabilia on a shelf. That's all I had. So why could we go over there? We didn't have a chair to sit on, hardly. You had one plate and one fork, right? Isn't one it? plate, one fork, one knife. That's a whole yeah. other podcast right okay. there. So we go in there, and she's looking around this room, and she's going around, and she picks up this little watch fob. It's a Timex watch with Ben Hogan's name on the face of the watch. So it's a collectible item, very collectible. And she picked it up, she looked at it, she put it back down, she walked on, and she says to this day that as I was walking behind her, I turned the clock because the watch, she had laid it back down just a tad askew. Yep. wasn't quite square to where I wanted it. And she, she thought, I can't marry this guy. He's, he's nuts. So I think my need to have things in order is, a, is my favorite quirk because it bothers a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'll come into my office and like straighten up my coaster and stuff. And so, of course, I'll automatically, you know, mm-hmm. re-mess it up just to yeah, see what it does. I think it's you. one of my best qualities. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Interesting take there. Thank you. Okay. Well, thanks, people, for all your questions. Um, follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We'll do another one of these maybe in the spring sometime, Coach. Absolutely. Something like that. Absolutely. Um, we'll keep on turning up uh, podcast episodes. So we really appreciate you guys listening. Thanks for your feedback. Thanks for your questions. We'll see you again next week.